This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, November the 3rd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those Friday horns and go. You might be saying to yourself, no, those horns sound like the regular horns. Mm, there's something different about the Friday horns. It's an intangible Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuig and Juita Gupta return to be part of the weekly news panel. There's been some political fallout from the federal government's decision to exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax. How could stories like this derail any momentum that exists in combating climate change? British Columbia and Ontario are mandating Holocaust education in high schools. It begs the question... How can history education be improved in Canada? And for a little bit of fun, with still a bit of a negative tinge, Taylor Swift is bringing the Eras Tour to Vancouver for three nights in December of 2024. The tickets are not cheap. It begs the question, what obligations do artists have in fighting the rising cost of entertainment? and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Thank you for spending part of your Friday with me on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv or the audio stream on AMIplus.ca or maybe you're doing a little weekend binging on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Either way, the show begins with the top story of the day. Stats Canada has released the September, October, October job numbers. Dave, get your month straight. The economy added 18,000 jobs in October. The unemployment rate did go up to 5.7% because more people were seeking jobs. Lots more stories out of the economic world for you this morning. Federal Finance Minister Krisha Freeland and her counterparts from across the country will have a virtual meeting about the Canada Pension Plan today. Karen Rebo looks ahead. Freeland called a meeting last week amid concerns about the ramifications of Alberta leaving the federal retirement plan to set up its own standalone program. The Alberta government says its workers have contributed an oversized share to the national fund and would be in line for big savings and payouts if it were to leave the CPP. Freeland says Albertans need to know the CPP delivers among the best returns in the world and that an Alberta pullout would put the program at great risk for millions. Alberta's finance minister, Nate Horner says he's also looking forward to discussing at this meeting other matters of intergovernmental dispute, including the federal carbon tax. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. No, that's not fair. The news panel is going to talk about the carbon tax. The finance ministers should just talk about the CPP today. That's what the finance ministers are up to. The prime minister is up to something today as well. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will represent Canada in Washington for the first ever summit of the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity. Rolls right off the tongue. U.S. President Joe Biden is going to be hosting the meeting at the White House with 12 other major economic powers from the hemisphere. Elsewhere, a Quebec Research Institute says some of Canada's biggest companies 
have transferred billions of dollars in profits to Luxembourg to avoid paying domestic taxes. Emily Javesky takes a closer look. The research published by IRIS says 59 Canadian companies transferred close to $120 billion in net profits to the European low-tax country over a period of about 10 years. The companies listed in the study include big names such as Thomson Reuters and Saputo. The study's co-author says Luxembourg was chosen for the research because it makes financial information publicly available. Colin Pratt says the phenomenon has increased by an average of 20% per year between 2011 and 2021. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. There really is no shortage of economic stories to share with you this morning. This one comes from the cryptocurrency world. FTX crypto exchange founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty of fraud. Andy Field has more. The jury took just a few hours to convict 31-year-old Sam Bankman-Fried of wire fraud, various other charges, including stealing from his FTX cryptocurrency investors. Bankman-Fried spoke with ABC News a year ago, admitting he'd made a lot of mistakes. Look, I screwed up. Like, I was CEO. But the jury found he'd actually stolen money from customer deposits to cover hedge fund losses, pay off loans, and buy expensive real estate. Andy Field, ABC News. I do this to you sometimes whenever the topic of crypto comes up because people spent a lot of time around the charging of Sam Bankman-Fried as a outright dunking on cryptocurrency. And it's a joke and it's a terrible thing and crypto is the worst. Just a reminder that FTX was an exchange, not an individual currency. And just in case you were wondering, Bitcoin, the Coca-Cola of cryptocurrency, well, it's gone up 69% in value in the last 12 months. It's trading at nearly $47,000 a coin this morning. So perhaps some of that tap dancing on the grave of crypto that was done about 12 months ago, uh, the song has come to an end and you've been left without your musical chair. That's the news. Let's go over to the Daily Polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook on Thursday. Also, a lot of talk about money. I talk to you about money a lot, probably because uh, money's important. It is. You live in a capitalist society. That's, that's the world you live in. On Thursday, you were asked at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, have you started saving for retirement? 64% of you said yes, and 36% of you said no. Pearly Pigtails writes in, no, I'm not able to save, just trying to get by. That's a sentiment that's shared by Tammy, who says, no, I live on ash and have a child. There's no room to save anything right now. And by the way, uh, Aish or ASH stands for Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped. Today's Daily Poll, looking into, well, I would say a lighter affair, but that's a bad pun. It's all about daylight saving because clocks go back an hour this weekend in most of the country. Shout out to our friends in Saskatchewan who are doing their own thing. If you were in charge, if I put you in charge of everything, would you stop the practice of daylight saving, yes or no? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Elizabeth Moeller, I bring this question to the poll today because there is a lot of medical and scientific research that suggests that daylight saving is actually a terrible practice for our health because it really messes up human biorhythms. In the spring, when, falls, when clocks go forward, heart attacks increase by 29% the following week. You also get a significant 
increase in car crashes, as well as just a number of other sort of smaller issues. But I think heart attacks and car crashes should almost be reason enough to say, maybe it's time to scrap the practice. Yes, I would agree. I was going also going to give a, a shout out to the folks in Saskatchewan. I think perhaps like Battle River might go on MST for part of the year, but I feel like it's a it's a bit of an antiquated practice. It was originally started to save candles and energy, and although I'm all for saving energy, I think that need has shifted. I also agree with the sleep sentiment. Um, accidents go up as well when the lighting changes, and as somebody that actually had a pretty severe accident right right after the standard time shift. I can appreciate that quite a bit. I also think um, the hour of sleep that we lose and the jolt that that does to our body has some pretty negative impacts, like you said. I think that just keeping one standard time zone, maybe not the standard, but a time zone throughout the year um, is the right way to go because although we are shifting to accommodate more light, we also have means now to light our homes that we might not have had in the mm. 1890s when this started. And of course, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, but also Hawaii doesn't uh, shift as well. So Arizona. We Arizona. Oh, are you going to get in a football reference on me? Nope. No, 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 no. Okay. 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 Uh, okay. Just checking. Just checking. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I, I think to answer your question, sorry, Dave, I had to, I, I think to answer your question, no, I think we should stop the practice, give us all that consistent sleep that we need and push that to bed. Yeah, if there was going to be a referendum on this, there is a two-question referendum, right? You can ask two. Do you want to scrap this? And then which one do you want? Do you want light in the morning or do you want light in the evening in the winter or something resembling <laughs> light in the winter uh, in the evening, right? Like, 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 like I'm willing to have this no, broader... No, yeah, yeah, me too. Like, like I'm willing to yeah. discuss which one people want, but I do think that at this point, my answer would be like, maybe it's time to scrap this practice yes. of fiddling around with the clocks. Laura Bain, what about you? What's the perspective of there in Halifax. You're speaking for the whole HRM this morning. <laughs> I don't want that responsibility, nor okay. do I want the responsibility for uh, making a decision about what's best for the country. And I want to absolutely leave those that to the experts to take all of that data into consideration. You're both swaying me a little bit. Now, my original answer, if I'm just speaking from my own preferences, I find that by the time daylight savings rolls around, I'm ready for that change. Right now, I'm really ready for that extra light in the morning, yeah. even if it means giving it up in the evening. And I feel the same way in the spring. I'm excited for when that extra hour comes in the evening, particularly as someone who's night blind. Okay, yeah. Uh, now, that being said, I did have an early morning flight last year on the day of daylight savings time, and I got so turned around. I ended up making a panicked call to my parents at like four in the morning trying to figure out what actual oh, no. correct time it was. Oh, no. So it can create oh, no. a bit of chaos. Especially at that time of the day, because that's quite close to the time the clocks Ooh, actually yeah, change. Yeah. Uh, back in yeah. my uh, younger, more adventurous days, I once went to a daylight saving party where we deliberately stayed up until the clock would actually change and then partied for an extra hour. Uh, we called it a, what did we call it? We called it a short, long weekend because the weekend is an hour longer 
but it's still a short, long weekend. It's not a real long weekend. Anyway, that's your thoughts. I appreciate both of your perspective on this one. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Feedback at ami.ca is the email address. Feedback at ami.ca is the email address. Or you can pick up the phone and give the show a ring. 1-866-509-4545. one 509 Would you scrap daylight saving time. No more fiddling around with the clocks. Just like the news panel never fiddles around, coming up after the break, Michelle McQuig and Juita Gupta get together for the news panel alongside yours truly to discuss the federal government's decision to exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and via audio at AMIplus.ca. So maybe you're enjoying the live broadcast on AMI-tv, looking at my beautiful model-esque face, well-contoured, and a little bit of hair gel in my hair today, or you're preferring the live audio at AMIplus.ca. Don't forget, if you want to do that, AMIplus.ca, you've got to spell out plus P. L-U-S. It's Friday, which means the weekly news panel gets together. You can't do a panel without panelists. So let's say good morning to Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Dave. I can't believe you contour. I, uh, well, I have uh, contour with carbohydrates. And also saying good morning and hello to Michelle McQuig. Good morning, friends. All right, got everybody together for this one. Let's jump right into the never controversial topic of the carbon tax. There's been some political fallout from the federal government's announcement to pause some carbon pricing. Rural Canadians who use some who use home heating oil will be getting a break. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explains why rural Canadians are receiving the benefit. Because if you live in a rural community, you don't have the same options that people who live in cities do. We get that. So this is more money in your pocket to recognize those realities, even as we continue to fight climate change and build a stronger economy. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev is calling on the Liberals to exempt all forms of home heating. The common sense conservatives have put forward a motion in the House of Commons extending the pause on home heating to all Canadians everywhere. B.C. Premier David Eby thinks it's unfair that only certain regions are benefiting. And so if the federal government is going to do this work, they need to do it in an equitable way across Canada. Uh, Here in British Columbia, we believe very firmly uh, that part of our uh, climate solution uh, includes recognizing that carbon has a price, but that doesn't mean that we don't recognize the affordability impacts, and that's why we work to support British Columbians. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe took a bit of a different tact. He says the province will stop collecting the carbon tax if Ottawa does not offer a break for natural gas as well. The federal government may say that's illegal and that you simply cannot choose to collect and pay your taxes. In most cases, I would agree with that. But it's the federal government that has created two classes of taxpayer by providing an exemption for heating oil. To her credit, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith was the first person to mention that the plan was unfair. That was last Friday. Even United Nations Special Envoy on Climate and former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney is not super fond of the Liberal government's plan. 
I would have looked for other ways uh, to provide that support uh, than uh, the route chosen, uh, not least because what is important is that clarity in terms of the overall plan, the overall direction. Just a bit of perspective here on timeline. This announcement came out late last Thursday. The first clip I played by the Prime Minister was last Thursday. Since all the fallout, I wanted to sort of circle back and give the Prime Minister the last word on this one. So Trudeau stands by his plan. Home heating oil is more expensive than other forms of heat, and home heating oil is disproportionately relied upon by lower-income Canadians in rural areas across the country who need more support. That's what we're doing, and that is absolutely something I am going to continue to stand for unequivocally, while Mr. Polyev has no plan to fight climate change and therefore no plan for the economy. So, Michelle, I acknowledge that I threw a lot of clips and perspective in there that played out over the course of five or six days, but I want you to zoom out even further. A few years in, how would you describe how the federal government is handling carbon pricing? I'll give you a spoiler alert on my answer. It's two words, overly complex. Well, and I think that's part of the the many arguments that have surfaced here. Even those who are who are generally for carbon pricing, like Mark Carney, and you played that clip, have expressed dissatisfaction with, with this particular U-turn because that's exactly what it is, and it kind of muddies the waters. It, it makes things more complicated. It was already a complex structure. Uh, the, the Liberals had to take a bit of a gamble by including it in their platforms in 2019 and 2020 or 21 rather. Um, so that was that is a risky move, and now we, we find ourselves in a bit of a maelstrom. And I, I have to add something to all the coverage you just said. Yesterday, the NDP indicated that they would probably back the Conservative bill. So that's a major, major yeah. problem for the Liberals right now uh, because of this confidence and, and supply agreement that's in place. Uh, the Liberals kind of have their feet to the fire in the, at the moment, and I think many people would argue that it's because they went and made an already complex issue even more complicated with this particular backtrack. Joita, a similar question to you. I'll put a little more preamble on this one, though. Sometimes in politics, they say good policy should be able to be written on a postage stamp. And at this point, the federal government's carbon price and exemptions and cap and trade, whether it be at the individual or the corporate level, has become uh, quite the maze of different policies. And even if you listen to that Pierre Polyev clip versus the two Justin Trudeau clips, Polyev got that out in nine seconds. Both of the prime minister's clips were well over 20 seconds. So that's where I land on this overly complex while acknowledging that climate change and carbon Carbon pricing is a complex structure, but the Prime Minister kind of walked into this on his own by introducing overly complex exemptions. Yes, I think the whole thing from start to finish is very complicated and hard to keep track of. I know I have to keep going back and double checking my notes to make sure I have all my I's dotted and my T's crossed when I talk about this particular issue. And I think what this um, particular exemption does is really send out mixed messages uh, on the part of the federal government as to how serious they actually are about uh, fighting the climate and implementing the carbon tax. So in some respects, it has, when you bring in an exemption to exclude, um, to, ex to exempt certain types of, of fuel and to exempt certain kinds of uh, certain sources of heating, it does open up the door uh, and I'm sure that was not the intention of the Liberal government, uh, to really start to undermine the entire carbon tax policy. Now, with that said, it is, I will concede, a problem that people should not be struggling to heat their homes. Yes, and 100%. Perhaps, 
Yeah. And perhaps perhaps the liberal policy should have been a little better thought out or could have been a bit better thought out where they offer an exemption to all Canadians to be able to heat their home. And that's really where the Conservatives are going with their policy. Uh, you, yeah. Michelle noted that the NDP is backing them on this. I'd be very interested to see what the BQ, the Bloc Québécois, does here because with the three parties, um, you know, siding with one another against the Liberal government, there is a chance that the Conservative motion will actually pass, which at minimum would be deeply embarrassing for the Liberal government. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Not, yeah. not to mention, you know, Quebec is a province that deeply uses hydroelectricity, so they'd be looking for their own exemptions as well, right? Like, like just across mm -hmm. the board, it stands to reason. And the three of us on this panel over the last 12 months have talked till we're blue in the face about where the sources of inflation are coming from in this country. Groceries, housing, and energy. I would say mm -hmm. of those three, energy is the one that the three of us have probably talked about the least. But Michelle, that's mm -hmm. one that continues to hit people in the pocketbooks because there's a volatility in those prices that really there's no fiscal or monetary policy that's going to change how energy is priced. That That is a pure market-driven mm -hmm. factor. So again, I, I understand some empathy on where the Liberal government's coming from. They want to try to offer people breaks, but when you start really picking in at granular details and trying to get too narrow in your focus, even people who support the carbon tax are going to feel left out. Yeah, exactly. And and I think this just goes to show exactly what a tight political spot the Liberals are in because they're caught between rock and a hard place here in terms of fighting climate change on one hand and affordability on the other. Both are hugely on the agenda right now. They're facing a lot of pressure. Uh, the record is being called into question on both these files. And now in, in an effort to uh, maybe alleviate pressure on one, they, they added a whole lot more on the other. Uh, so they, they seem to be in a, in a real bind this way. And now, of course, they're facing also political questions about who this move impacts. Yes, the home heating mm -hmm. exemption applies across Canada, but the ultimate net impact is more concentrated in Atlantic Canada, yes. which is traditionally mm -hmm. a liberal stronghold politically, and where they've seen their numbers slipping because they've been slipping nationally. So mm -hmm. the, to me, all of this just speaks to the, the, the degree of sort of political panic rather than more policy-driven uh, decision-making. Joita, I've ranted and raved about rebates as a policy, uh, as, as not the best way to do anything in terms of stimulating the economy or dealing with cost of living. It's like very short term versus long-term thinking. I do look at the urban-rural divide, and I accept the Prime Minister's position that living in rural Canada can be more expensive to get some of these necessities. Mm -hmm. But I would have preferred, I mean, whether it be uh, in the last year or the last eight years, if maybe that acknowledgement of the struggles that a rural Canadian feels might be met more with investment rather than rebate, if the Prime Minister and the government more broadly are willing to acknowledge that energy costs in rural Canada are higher, then maybe there should have been a greater investment in sustainable energy solutions in rural Canada. Again, I know I'm going outside of, the, of our pay grade on this one, mm. but how do you perceive some of that rural-urban back and forth that's existed as part of this conversation over the last seven days? Well, I mean, the rural-urban divide has existed a lot longer than that, and it crops up time and time again over the course of various issues, but certainly has become something of a lightning rod over the last seven days, where it has become um, a bit of a, a push and pull between the needs of of rural Canadians versus those of, 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 of their urban counterparts. And, and, and yes, it's true. I think we can all acknowledge that there are many 
unanticipated and unexpected and heightened costs associated with living in rural Canada. We've talked about everything from the exorbitant price of transportation right down to the over-the-top price of groceries in, in remote parts of the country. So I think we we can all readily acknowledge, and yes, your point about investments is a good one. Certainly, um, there there should be more of an investment made in rural and uh, and remote parts of the country to try and re regenerate, to sort of revitalize or re-energize their economy. I think that's a really powerful step in the right direction. But in the meantime, because investments also take time to yes, generate revenues, yes. uh, the mm -hmm. rebate option cannot be entirely turfed. And I think one of the things that has to be mentioned about the particular carbon tax exemption that we're talking about is that it is meant to provide a three-year grace period for homeowners to switch over their heating system. So it's not forever. Uh, and it does give you a certain amount of money in your pocket if you are uh, reliant on um, on 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 and on oil as a form of, of of heating your homes. But they're saying you know you take three years and try and, and change things over, and maybe that'll uh, and that's the end goal of the policy. But of course, it has inevitably, and I would argue unsurprisingly, led to all kinds of political horse trading and back and forth, which yeah. really shouldn't have surprised anybody. Michelle, what about you? What do you think about the rural-urban uh, divide? So oftentimes it comes up either before or right after an election. An election, And then, you know, hangs around a little bit, bubbling under the surface. But this week it really came into the forefront. It really did. And it's it kind of surprising it doesn't happen more often because with every single election, that divide becomes more and more stark. So I, I'm actually kind of baffled on that one in that the Liberals don't historically do very well in these rural communities. They've already been bleeding support everywhere else, including in longtime strongholds. So this policy was meant to benefit rural voters, but I don't see it really moving the needle. So again, adding to my kind of political perplexity on how this whole thing has been handled, uh, that's another one for me. But yeah, no, it really, it really does make the the disparity quite clear. And if you look at the numbers associated with the heating costs of those who use, uh, who heat their homes in rural areas and, and for the carbon taxes that rural residents do pay, it is definitely higher. Mm. So in that sense, uh, there's sort of empirical evidence as well to back the electoral one that we see every few years. Michelle, this is going to zoom way out into the abstract, but it's worth exploring at least a smidge, at least for a minute or two, because this has come up on the show a couple of times this week about sometimes the difficulty in truly being green or sustainable as an individual, and sometimes the onus that gets put onto the individual rather than the institutional onus to make greener choices. I would argue there's a risk that even people who care about climate change, even people who support carbon pricing, are eventually just going to feel defeated and check out because of the lengthly nature by which changing our society to going greener is taking as just horrific things happen around us and the world. I know that I'm taking a huge leap here into the abstract, but if you were to offer an opinion how could stories like this and the back and forth like this end up derailing any momentum that actually exists? I don't know if it's if I can conclusively say that it would. Uh, absolutely, some people will get fed up, and others, is in seeing that, will themselves get galvanized and take up the mm -hmm. torch. It seems to happen all the time, right? People do get disenchanted, and, and then someone else steps up who's got fresh for the fight. Maybe it's a new generation who hasn't been part of the previous back and forth, and is saying, get real people we need to sort this out we got some fresh ideas it, there seems always to be people who are able to 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 
the momentum for these fights seems to keep building and I really don't see climate change as one that where people are going to give up entirely just because the ramifications are so concrete and so real when they'd only look at this past summer. I think even, you know, when people started breathing smog from Quebec in, in southwestern Ontario, uh, for a lot of people that has proven to be a wake-up call. So I think political wrangling uh, also might be wind in the sails of some people who mm. are angry about this stuff mm -hmm. and might use that as as momentum for themselves in their fight. Joey, a similar question to you. The conversation that happened earlier this week is about the overly complex nature of local recycling policies and how it changes mm -hmm. from urban boundary to urban boundary. And the argument that I made there is that if you make it so impossible to recycle at a certain point, everyone's going to throw their stuff in the trash and like throw their hands up in the air. I know that the stakes on something like carbon tax and overall carbon pollution is a little bit higher than simply uh, local recycling <laughs> policies. But mm -hmm. what, what do you make of my assertion that, that some Sometimes when you get a story like this, that even though the carbon tax has largely been supported based on votes of 60 to 60 percent of Canadians based on the last two federal elections, that you get a story like this that just throws so many like kinks in the gears that people might just throw their hands up in the air and be like, oh, forget it. It's like this isn't worth it. Yes and no. I, I think there will certainly be groups of people who will be disenchanted saying, oh, yeah, you were all for the carbon tax until it actually came down to, you know, people who used a lot of carbon and became politically inconvenient for you to keep supporting the policy. Um, so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are people who will be disengaged and disenfranchised, but I do think that there's momentum building uh, around climate activism, especially amongst young people that is happening on a very grassroots level. And I don't know how much that momentum will will change or shift as a result of high level political horse trading and back and forth. So I think that there's a lot of energy around fighting climate change, especially in people much younger than us. Uh, you know, people in high school, young university students are really pushing the needle and are showing activism around the climate in ways that are truly remarkable. And there's a, de a number of environmentalists have also talked about the power of uh, connecting with the environment as a way to keep yourself going. I mean, I think for uh, the environmental movement has been around for many years now, and you get some wins and you get some losses. And I think if you're committed for the long haul, you take the good with the bad. So you're not really going to throw your hands up because of the uh, because of what might be perceived as a political setback. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing, but, and, but, and by, by know, the way, by the way, until Pierre Polyev wins the next election in 2025 and scraps the whole darn thing. <laughs> Well, then that's a major setback. We'll cross that bridge in 2025. But the other thing, I and I often reflect on this in light of the the whole fracas about the straw ban, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Is I think... Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that I think in some respects, the environmental movement has been forced to grow in as well. And you can't just be a single issue uh, campaign anymore. And so I think there's a little more sophistication built into the analysis where they'll say, okay, this carbon tax exemption does apply to people in rural communities who have affordability, affordability challenges that urban Canadians do not. And as environmentalists, if you want to fight this fight in a sustainable fashion, and by sustainable, I don't mean sustainable for the environment, I mean sustainable to try and keep people in, in the under the umbrella or in the tent, then we have to recognize people's different economic and lived yeah. realities. So I think that the environmental movement is also becoming more sophisticated and I'm not sure this is the one that's going to 
undermine um, the efforts around the carbon tax. All right. Uh, that's a nice optimistic moment to, to end this conversation on. So let's put a pin in this one, and I'm sure it will be revisited moving forward uh, between now and 2025 and in 2026. And so long as now with Dave Brown exists, I sense that there will be conversations <laughs> about the carbon tax. But coming up next, British Columbia and Ontario are mandating Holocaust education in high schools. It begs the question, how can history education be improved in Canada I have thoughts, and I know Joita and Michelle do too. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's get into the next topic. British Columbia and Ontario are making Holocaust education for high schoolers mandatory starting in the 2025 school year. BC Premier David Eby explains the policy. We know how threats and hate can accelerate into violent acts and into horrific outcomes. We must ensure that the same horrors are not repeated. When we say never again in relation to the Holocaust, we mean it. Michelle, why did you want to explore history and education in Canada in the context of these stories, these two policies, and broader world events? Well, I, I will recap all the world events that have got me thinking about this kind of thing. I'm sure we can all uh, make some inferences there. Uh, but we've been hearing about a lot about uh, Nazi rhetoric in the context of the Ukraine war, uh, both here and, and historically in Ukraine. And then, of course, that's the line of reasoning that Russia has been using for this invasion. And in the Middle East, uh, the, the, the complexities there uh, would take up the entire show to, to keep repeating. So I will not. But we have, since this conflict broke out a few weeks ago, seen a massive, massive spike in anti-Semitic incidents, some truly terrifying ones abroad. Uh, we've also seen some growing Islamophobia. And this has had me thinking about what kind of lessons were we taught in high school uh, mm. for me mm -hmm. or, or at any point in our education, because I think that this will, this does play a role in shaping the attitudes of adults. I, I know for sure had a fair bit of Holocaust education and, and oppression uh, education around the, around the oppression of Jews. I had a teacher who uh, fled the Hungarian revolution in 1956 um, largely on religious grounds. And she shared that story with the class and that kind of thing was incredibly powerful for me. And I never forgot about that sort of thing um, to the point actually where I was a bit surprised to learn that Holocaust education was not actually mandatory mm -hmm. and that this policy was, was being brought in because from, I, I did grow up with a certain amount of that, uh, but obviously many, many, many other people are not. And I can't help but wonder what kind of factor that would have been uh, had some of those historical facts been made more broadly had been more broadly known even though i thought they were yeah so michelle i'm in a similar boat to you i i thought holocaust education was already fairly mandatory and fairly standard in a lot of canadian high schools but then i had to zoom out a little bit and remember that i am from english montreal and the fabric yeah. of english montreal is so connected to the jewish community that helped build the fabric of that city so Absolutely. so so I, I i then started to try to remember wait how much of this was sort of colloquial learning versus structured learning and then i thought to myself wow maybe 
maybe the actual high school history classes, specifically in grade 10, really left out a lot of sort of the real horrific atrocities that went along with the Holocaust. And I've also mentioned this before in regards to truth and reconciliation, how many modules of grade 10 Canadian history were spent on what Iroquois people ate in 1450, rather than the horrible impact of colonialism. And it got me thinking, generally speaking, especially later on in high school, grade 10 or grade 11, or I suppose in Ontario, as you guys get to grade 12, or other provinces get to grade 12, how kind of vanilla a lot of history is and how un and how unwilling these these schools are to teach about atrocities so i would say yeah. it would be woeful in the way that canadian curriculum teaches about historical atrocities but that's just mm -hmm. my personal evaluation juido what's yours well, I think um, there's actually a lot of survey data that indicates that Canadians are woefully ignorant about the Holocaust. In one poll in 2019, it was found that only 58% of Canadians had realized or knew that Canada fought the Nazis during the Second World War. That's uh, and the younger wow. that the and the younger the respondent was, the less likely they were to know. Go back a year before that, in 2018, they had another poll where in only one out of five youth surveyed had uh, an inkling of the the details around the Holocaust, and only two thirds understood how many Jews had been murdered. Uh, but many had even so greatly underestimated the numbers. So when you look at the data, that clearly shows that as the Holocaust and the events of the Second World War recede further into history, we know less and less about them. And it's not just the Holocaust where we have this deficit. I think there's a very there was a very high profile case of the speaker inviting um, a Ukrainian war veteran um, to be acknowledged in the House. You know, he lost his seat over it, as we know, and he lost his his position as speaker over it. And not one person, not one MP, stood up and made the connection and said, "Hang on a second. Yeah, if you were yeah. fighting Russia during the Second World War." You chances you were, are you were fighting uh, with the Nazi. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that goes to show you this is a high profile incident that caused national embarrassment. It just goes to show you we are not clued in. And I think it's, um, you know, that that clip that we played off the top is really instructive that those words never again are very important because his, this education about the Holocaust and other atrocities of a similar scale teach students and teach young people two things. One, that these things happen but also that they, it is possible for these things to happen again. And so it's not just about learning the, the, the historic record, but it's also about putting us on notice and putting us on guard, um, especially as weapons become more destructive and we have greater technologies around surveillance and, and combat that that wiping out large populations of people, the genocides and, th and things of a truly horrific nature are indeed possible. But if yeah. we don't teach history, then we are bound to make the same mistakes again. And again. Michelle? I, can I can I just a very quick addendum to this? The phrase never again. I'm all uh, many, many, many Jewish people I know are saying that was obviously a lie. They don't believe that anymore and they feel that it is happening again right now. So mm -hmm. even now, in light of the current context, that that kind of motto is now ringing empty to the people it's meant to reassure.
How do you think we ended up here? Joita, you, you shared those stats, and thank you for doing that, because those are very illustrative mm -hmm. of where the situation is. And certainly there are a lot of movements uh, in education right now about not making students uncomfortable. And I can maybe understand this from an elementary school perspective, like how much you want to share about World War II or overall global conflict or atrocities, you know, when someone is under the age of 13, 14. But Michelle, I'm at this point where I think we need to start treating 15, 16, 17-year-old high school students as people who can capably understand there are atrocities in the world. There's a responsible way to teach people about atrocities. But at this point, I think you have to. I think you have to be doing courses about the Holocaust. I think you have to be doing uh, courses about the Rwandan genocide. I think you have to be, mm, I think yeah. you have to be teaching students about the complexity of what's going on in Israel and Gaza and Palestine and the broader Arab-Israeli conflict. I, I think that we're at this point where there needs to be a complete rethinking of the history courses that we're teaching people that is now treating 16-year-olds like the worldly people the internet has turned them into. I completely agree with you. And especially when we have had conversations on this panel, there are schools of thought that the vote should be lowered to people in that sort of age bracket of 16 and beyond. And I know everyone on this panel said, yeah, bring it on. People do care. They are engaged. They are absolutely capable of learning this stuff. And I'm, I would argue that many want to. As a teen, I know I would have greatly enjoyed being treated like an adult in education, any educational context that I was in. And those are great examples that you mentioned. And I would add, there's so many other closer oh, to home yeah, that I, yeah. I never learned about. You know, the China, the head tax on, on people coming to Canada for, who are from China, Japanese internment, uh, recommendations from the TRC are almost contingent on the educational curriculum being overhauled to include some discussion of residential schools. There are so many things that require, a, demand a lot of deep diving. And given the the, the vast, of misinformation that's out there on the internet mm -hmm. they have to get it from a more credible source and that that school would be the obvious place to start there for me yeah juita understanding that it would be a battle because there are mm -hmm. people who would say oh our children are sacred and they have virgin ears and they can't hear these things mm -hmm. i'm at i'm really at this point where i think again understanding there's an age limit on this i don't want people in mm -hmm. pre-k you know being shown schindler's list i don't i don't think that's going to be yeah. offering any kind of educational merit but mm -hmm. i do think that the really at this point in latter high school education grade 9 10 11 12 so that's high school in ontario it's the latter mm -hmm. half of high school in quebec i think there really needs to be a concerted effort here on being willing to appropriately and sensitively teaching young people about real history and contemporary history and historical atrocities, colonialism, residential schools, genocides. People need to learn about this stuff and it can't yeah. and they can't depend on Wikipedia for it. Yep. Yeah, no one would no one would disagree with you. Uh, oh, but there I are people. No, there, there there are plenty of parents who do. Alberta uh, is active, Alberta is actively working against scrapping any mention of reconciliation and residential schools in their high schools. Yeah, and I mean the the reason that they're you know the, in theory no one would disagree with you. Like if you were to say to a parent, do you want your child to have a full rounded, well rounded education that covers, you know, the good and the bad in history? They'll say, yes, bring it on. But when you get into the particulars, that's when people start to get really upset because the things that we're talking about that happened 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago continue to have a bearing on us today. And so that's where it becomes really complicated.
Uh, when you think about, you know, talking about the treatment of indigenous people, uh, you talk about the 60s scoop, uh, or you talk about even going further back in history about uh, colonialism in Canada, you, it's impossible to have that conversation without the treatment, without also acknowledging the, the treatment of indigenous people today. And that's where people start to get uh, worried about it. And then there's also qu questions about, well, do we talk about this, but not that? Because there are in the 20th century, four major genocides. And you'll, I'm sorry to have to confess my ignorance on, or profess my ignorance on national television, but the reality is there's the the Holocaust, to which I think, you know, that, that I feel I'm re relatively well-informed on, and most people would be probably well-informed on, vis-a-vis -vis the others, which are the, the Cambodian genocide, the Armenian genocide, mm. and the Rwandan genocide. And if we have yeah. so little, yeah. so widespread ignorance about the Holocaust, as we've outlined, then what about the others? How do you talk about them? When do you talk about them? What is the right way to talk about them? I think these are the questions that divide us more than anyone actually turning around and saying, no, we shouldn't talk about them at all. I think we've come, we've, we have in many places and in many spaces gotten past the point where people are saying we shouldn't talk about this. They will say acknowledge that, okay, well, in high school, maybe it's a time to start having those conversations. But the nitty gritties is where I think a lot of the fraction, yeah. a lot of the discontent continues to simmer. I almost wonder if it's creating a second history class. I almost wonder if it's saying there's going to be just your standard Canadian history class that we've all admitted is a little bit woeful, but I'm sure people still want to make sure their kids know who John A. Macdonald was. I would argue maybe it's time to teach them who John A. Macdonald actually was. Uh, <laughs> but maybe there's also a sort of a second history class or a second module. You split the year into two. That's more of a human rights oriented history class, right? Mm -hmm. So it ends up being very focused because you're right, Juita. If you want to start talking about every historical atrocity uh, over the course of the last five thousand years of human civilization that's going to be that's going to be a busy busy time but but you're right to identify that there need to be some very particular choices and i would argue because that there is a strong canadian connection to the rwandan genocide that that one might make quite a bit of sense and maybe there's mm -hmm. a, maybe the armenian genocide you're tacking that on a little bit to some world war one conversations like like, yeah. there, like there's a way mm -hmm. to do this that isn't maybe entire modules on the armenian genocide but saying right. we're going to make sure we're taking a day or two of class to acknowledge and talk about this. Mm -hmm. What I would love to uh, see would be a whole separate course, uh, sort of a world issues tied to history course where you yes. dive into the history and then you apply it to a context that's happening today. Yes. Uh, so, you know, so you learn about the Holocaust, then you examine the, the current conflict in the Middle East, for instance. I would love to see that kind of thing where you combine the two and weave some media literacy and, and critical thinking training in along with this historical study, because this is going to be a huge part of this moving forward is sorting out the fact from the fiction, the misinformation from the real details. Yeah. I think I think those things go hand in hand when you talk about teaching history these days. I hope you're planning a sabbatical, Michelle, because you're taking a year off from your usual job. This might be a really, they should just deputize you to the uh, provincial <laughs> government in Ontario to design a curriculum because you really took it out of, uh, you took the words from my mouth. I think what we need is a historic geopolitical class. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the media, the media literacy component is really powerful. And not just to talk about world conflicts, but also to talk about slavery, to talk about, uh, mm, yeah. uh, you know, colonialism and trying to make connections between those things. Um, I think that a class like that, even if you don't end up becoming a student of history or politics down the road, it does give you a better sense 
of our place in the world and, yeah. you know, how we come to be who we are and, you know, the space that we occupy. So it'll be really powerful. Michelle, that's your next big project. Yeah. Can, and, <laughs> yes, and, and can I add that everyone should take the civics class that I took in grade nine with uh, Dr. Maurice Durocher, who taught us all about how Canadian government works and how uh, the economy oh. works more broadly at a macroeconomic level. Let's uh, mm -hmm. get Dr. Durocher to uh, do a national course as well. Uh, Cheers. Let, yeah. Let's, let's leave that there because I do want a couple of minutes, if only to get my uh, word play in, in the next intro for our next topic because <laughs> it, it's going to beg the question after the break the obligation that artists have in fighting the rising cost of entertainment taylor swift is putting on a show in vancouver tickets are not cheap but it's not just limited to taylor swift concert tickets are out of control the cost of entertainment is out of control a little bit of inflation talk after the break on the now news panel on ami tv news panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck for you and it comes from the world of entertainment. Taylor Swift fans in Canada have another chance to get back together. Forget a cruel summer in 2024. It'll be back to December in Vancouver. That's right, Tay-Tay is bringing the Eras Tour to BC Place December 6th, 7th and 8th in 2024. It's good news for some fans, but it also poses a bit of trouble, trouble, trouble. Face value on the tickets are in the hundreds of dollars. You're looking at minimum 350 to 400. That's if you're lucky enough to get tickets at face value. The cheapest real resale ticket for her 2024 Toronto shows nearly $1,400. There's very little blank space left in the coverage of the rising cost of living, but what about the cost of entertainment? Is it a champagne problem or something worthy of bad blood? Michelle, what's your observation about the rising cost of entertainment? Concerts, streaming, movies, guys, sports, dinner, etc. Guys, he's been waiting hours, days for this. Just FYI. <laughs> um... <laughs> Um, it's a thing. It's real. I, I, I went to the Barbie movie with a friend a few weeks back and it was what, like 40 bucks all in for everything. And we like, we split popcorn. It was, people have griped about this forever, but a night at the movies used to be the cheap date. It used to be the inexpensive way to do things. That's now not a thing. Um, so you up for Netflix, those subscriptions keep going up. Uh, concert tickets are a whole other thing. I, I, I don't even remember the last time I was willing to go to a show because it was just, it's just exorbitantly expensive almost all the time. Even just club shows are, are crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, Michelle, like, that, that's, that's, that's a great like, observation right there. Going to see some like mid tier club band is going to like run the you horseshoe. For, yeah, it's going to run you 40 or 50 mm -hmm. bucks yeah. these days. It's it's mm -hmm. bonkers. Anyway, so, so it, it's it's real. Like we 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 gripe about it. It's not something we think about. It will never get the kind of attention like the parliamentary committees that you know bread price fixing would, would has have have triggered. But it's real and it's a problem because frankly, in the world we're in, people could use some breaks. 
<laughs> yeah, J Juita, Michelle hit it right there. Because I do think that although entertainment could be perceived as a champagne problem, it is still important that people get escapism mm -hmm. here and there. And it really strikes me the affordability of escapism is really starting to run away from the average person. Yes, it is. And I think you're not going to find, again, too many people who disagree that the Netflix subscription has gone up or the price of a movie theater ticket has gone up. And I think it really speaks to the fact that uh, it's not so much the artists, but more uh, this whole resale market around tickets that has become yeah. the real problem. And I think that is something that uh, could warrant some government intervention. I mean, you got to wonder how a ticket that was $350 or $400 at face value ends up being resold for almost three times that price. And we're not just talking about, um, you know, concerts, but also uh, for sporting events. Oh, yeah. so those tickets yeah, yeah, get yeah. snapped up oh, my like God. this yeah. and they get resold. I mean, it's a really good thing. I have zero interest in sports. <laughs> otherwise, I'd be blowing the budget well, left, well, right, well, Joita, Joita, let me cite an example for you. Uh, I was trying to get my dad some World Series tickets. He's in Arizona right now. The Arizona Diamondbacks were, in Ari uh, were, were playing a World Series game in Phoenix this week. Uh, $835 for the cheapest resale ticket available when Holy face value smokes. was like 80-ish bucks. Wow. I love it's you, Dad, insane. but I don't love you that much. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, it's terrible. It's really awful. And I think that's really somewhere that government can get involved because it, entertainment, because the thing with concerts is historically concerts used to promote record sales. Now, of course, if you're an artist, no one's buying albums anymore unless you are into vinyl. So that revenue stream has all but dried up. CDs are a goner, a thing of the past. Cassette tapes, what cassette tapes? Uh, and so now you really get a lot of streaming. And if you're an artist and you're putting your music out over a streaming platform, you're making sense per download mm. so the concert really has become the way for artists to make money and even as artists use the concert as a revenue generating mechanism it still doesn't justify the kind of prices we're seeing today so i'm going to say this you know is, is it record labels because you know yes artists do have an obligation to push back if they can but that's the minority of artists who have that kind of club yeah, but the majority yeah. of artists are beholden to uh, some conglomerate, some record player company, some record label. So I don't know how much pushback they really they have. So I understand why concerts are important to artists from a revenue standpoint, but it doesn't excuse these yeah. prices. Michelle, you're only going to have about a minute for this answer because I want to get all of you guys out of here by uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time. But I want to put a little bit of a preamble on this in terms of the obligation of the artist, because I do believe they have some obligation, but they're also in a very tricky situation because now there are a lot of third parties involved. Uh, U.S. Congress had some hearings earlier this year about Ticketmaster and Live Nation and venue fees and the things that are being charged of artists to put on a show at a major venue. So I think right now the whole system has a lot of third parties nibbling away at the fringes that's putting artists in a really cruddy situation. But I do think they probably do have some artists, uh, some obligation to try and push back the ones at least who have clouts and a lot of them are not. <laughs> a lot of them are riding that's that it. wave. But Michelle, what, what do you think the obligation of an artist is in this scenario yeah i i am with you i think that this conversation is moot for the bulk of them who wouldn't have who don't feel they have you know whose risk is too steep for them to speak up but someone like a taylor swift i i would love to see a little more pushback on, on the this kind of thing because yeah i agree it's not only does it build really goodwill with the fans when the artist becomes an advocate but this is an industry problem and this is the industry in which they're playing and and when any major powerful voice in any industry speaks up that's usually when change starts to happen so yes i really do think that the industries as are the leading players here they're the ones that 
generate the revenue, that get people into the seats. So uh, for those who, who can, I would love to see a little more action on that front. Yeah. Guys, out of time, as always, never an opportunity to fully explore the last topic, but that's okay because the first two were so darn meaty. Michelle, you have a lovely weekend. Talk to you on Monday morning for the weekend news recap. You bet. Have a good weekend. And Joita, you enjoy your weekend as well. I hear you're going to be in the AMI offices on Sunday. I will not be coming to visit. <laughs> yes, thank you. Have a good weekend as well. <laughs> That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI audio coming up after the break a couple of interesting stories in the regional news update including a crackdown on magic mushrooms in uh, the vancouver area and brock richardson stops by for a sports chat this is now with dave brown on ami tv and my girl taylor swift with cruel summer Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv in audio format at amiplus.ca or on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network from coast to coast to coast and beyond, maybe even blasting out into space. I wonder if aliens have Spotify. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, November the 3rd, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, five books have been nominated for the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will tell you all about them. And the last ever Beatles song has been released for the world to enjoy or not. You'll find out what Laura Bain thinks of the new Beatles song now and then in the entertainment reports. You'll find out what I think about it too. But before you get any of that, here is the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, one of three magic mushroom stores raided by Vancouver police this week has already reopened. The other two are expected to reopen today. The Vancouver Police Department executed search warrants at the stores on Wednesday in an investigation into the sale of illegal psychedelic drugs. Owner Dana Larson says his stores have business licenses from the city. Police said they're still considering whether to recommend charges to Crown prosecutors. Over to the prairies, the Alberta government is proposing changes to the Public Health Act to allow politicians to make final decisions in public health emergencies. Justice Minister Mickey Amory says elected officials have a different kind of responsibility. As we learned during the COVID-19 pandemic, the impacts of a public health emergency are significant and wide-ranging. Some of these impacts include the economic and mental health well-being of Albertans. Albertans elect public health of public officials to make big decisions on their behalf. Emery says any decision should still be based on scientific evidence, although I didn't hear him say science in that answer, just FYI. Ontario. Ontario is proposing to launch its own infrastructure bank. The Ontario Infrastructure Bank would be an arm's length agency enabling pension plans and other investors to help fund projects. Finance Minister Peter Bethenfalvy says pro the province will deposit an initial $3 billion to get the bank going. A new arm's length agency, the bank, 
will leverage investments by public sector pension plans and other trusted institutional investors to help fund large-scale infrastructure projects right across the province. So the fund would tackle projects like building long-term care homes and transit. And finally, in the Atlantic, the PEI government has introduced a winter tourism strategy. The province also introduced a fall and winter tourism development fund yesterday. Grants of up to $7,500 are available for operators to develop new tourism ventures. The island's community business development corporations will continue to offer grants between $2,500 and $50,000 for tourism operators to introduce a new product or expand their operating season. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, jumping right into a weekend look ahead, and you're welcome to use any evidence you picked up during the course of the week to do this weekend look ahead. But the main event in NHL hockey on Saturday night is going to be the late night game on Hockey Night in Canada. 10 p.m. Eastern time, the Dallas Stars finish their tour of Western Canada after beating up on the Alberta teams. They get to go tete-a-tete with the very surprising and quite enjoyable Vancouver Canucks coming off a 10-1 victory last night. Yeah, that was pretty wild. I They had an outstanding game. They were led by Brock Besser, who had a whole mess of points. Uh, you know, it was, it was really good. And I know we had Vancouver kind of on the... Eh, you know, push them over there, but they have shown us that Brock, my specific evaluation of Vancouver going into the season was <laughs> don't embarrass yourselves. <laughs> yeah. And they, they actually embarrassed their opponent is what they did. Uh, and it's, it's, I didn't even realize last night's game till I got up this morning and I was like, wow, this is, this is great. I watched the extended highlight highlights. It was wonderful. So yes, I will be watching that game at uh, 10 p.m. on Saturday. That yeah. is that is one. Of, it, it's one up. Of it's it's up and down the whole lineup, though. It, it, it wasn't just uh, you know, it wasn't just Brock Besser scoring some goals last night. Your fellow Brock Quinn Hughes, their defenseman, had five points. Elias Peterson added another three assists. He's he's got 19 points in 10 games so far this year. JT Miller is putting the puck in the net. They are getting contributions from everywhere they were made fun of broadly last trade deadline yeah. for bringing in the defenseman Ronick from Detroit people were saying oh Vancouver's in a rebuild why would they bring in a second pairing defenseman he has been a revelation for them this year on their defense core this Vancouver team for all the crud that they took in the offseason and then people like me making fun of them at the start of the season what a marvelous start to the year here's the thing though the Dallas Stars, they are no laughing matter. This is also an excellent hockey team. This might be one of those humbling games for the Vancouver Canucks because it's one thing to beat the San Jose Sharks, who have yet to register a win this season on home ice. The Dallas Stars are a different beast. The Dallas Stars have Stanley Cup aspirations. Yeah. And you know what? I'd love to just see Vancouver just be in the game, be competitive, be be relevant. You know, don't... Don't let Dallas come and run you over after you, you know, put such a good performance and good start to the season, as you mentioned. For me, this is one that I'm looking at and thinking, oh, Sunday morning, I'm going to get up a little blurry-eyed, but that's fine. Yeah, I'll Dallas, get an extra yeah, hour of sleep. So. Yeah, exactly. An hour extra this weekend to catch some sleep. Yeah, Dallas uh, put the boots to Edmonton last night. They beat up Calgary the night before. They beat Edmonton on the back end of a back-to-back. -back. Uh, Joe Pavelski. 
39 years old, the guy's still averaging a point a game. It blows me away. 39. I'm turning 40 in seven days, Brock. I have no idea how this guy is skating with these young folks. Hey, you know what? Uh, sometimes you got to drink the youth. And if you're around a bunch of young guys, maybe this uh. is uh, this is what happens. But I can't imagine doing anything athletic at the age of 39 of that magnitude. Yeah, so well, I've, good on him. I've been drinking something which could explain why uh, why I can't compete with the guys like Joe Pavelski at 39 years old. Brock, you mentioned a blurry Sunday, a blurry-eyed Sunday morning, not just from staying up late to watch Vancouver and Dallas on Sportsnet and CBC, but the National Football League is offering you a little bit of a brunch special on Sunday. NFL Sunday, this is probably one of the best Cal Celebrated NFL Sundays with a marquee matchup in every time slot beginning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time with a game from Frankfurt, Germany. The Miami Dolphins and the Kansas City Chiefs are playing for the best record in the AFC for the top spot in the conference. And I'm excited to eat Eggs Benedict and watch this football game. Yes, this is good. You talk about games that are, where are we at? This is the game for Miami of, where are we at? This is a game for Kansas City. Where are we at? Is Patrick Mahomes come back 100%? I would think so. By all accounts, he seems to be okay this week. So this is going to be another one of those, take your phrase, tete-a-tete games and sort of see what happens here. I'm looking very much forward to this. And again, I love this because both teams are going into Germany at the same time. There's nobody there before you know, oh, after oh, 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 I got a journalism here, Brock. The Dolphins flew out on Monday. The Chiefs only arrived yesterday. Yes, but at least, at least, well, that that's their choice, though. At least nobody played ahead of time. Yes, that's what right. I mean. They're still, yeah. still, still, still grinding that axe from Buffalo, yeah. Buffalo Bills walking into a yes. Jacksonville ambush. But yeah, the Dolphins flew out yes. on Monday. The Chiefs uh, flew out yesterday. So the Dolphins are going to be arguably a little less jet lagged. Brock, you said the word sort of measuring stick, where are we at game. The Dolphins have failed both those tests this year. They got beat up by the Buffalo Bills in their first measuring stick game. They got beat up by the Philadelphia Eagles in their second measuring stick game. The Dolphins are 6-0 and against teams with losing records, 0-2 against teams with winning records. So you're right. This is another measuring stick for the Miami Dolphins. I don't think that it's as much a measuring stick for the Kansas City Chiefs because they're the defending Super Bowl champions. You get leeway when you've won two Super Bowls in the last four years. Yeah. What? Okay. Let me ask you this. If the Miami Dolphins go over three, do you have more questions then? Or are you still having the same questions even though they're 0-2 and possibly, you know, uh, one and two at the end of this three-game stretch. I am not going to answer your question directly. I will simply put it this way. <laughs> the Miami Dolphins have stunk for 25 years since Dan Marino left the team. I am just happy that my team is winning more games than they're losing. I'm very happy to be a good mid-tier team who is not elite. I can live with the reality of saying, hey, let's make the playoffs a couple years in a row and just enjoy that. Uh, I'm, I'm not ready for Super Bowl aspirations, Brock. I, I can't handle it in fact the dolphins have already played too many primetime games for my taste anyway i liked to have my shame uh, covered by the overall blanket of other football games uh, earlier in my life so uh, I, I i i'm i have no problem with the dolphins losing this game but obviously i would i would like them i would like them to win Brock, I, I wish i could be there with with the buffalo bills i wish i could be there with the 
accepting they're losing. I, I can't. I need them to win. You'll get a chance to talk about your Bills in one second here, Brock. Hold on, though. Let's skip past the Seattle Seahawks visiting the Baltimore Ravens. That game's in the 1 p.m. Eastern time window. Also an excellent game. The Seahawks playing their third 1 p.m. Eastern time uh, road game this season, flying out from Seattle. That Those are typically difficult. They're 1-1 one one in those games. The Ravens are a good team. The Seahawks are starting to figure their stuff out a little bit. So that that's a good game at 1 p.m. to maybe, you know, simmer you down a little bit from the Dolphins and Chiefs game. But then there's another great game at 4.25 p.m. Eastern time on Fox. The Dallas Cowboys visiting the Philadelphia Eagles. Right now, the Eagles are the best team in football. The Dallas Cowboys want to be the best team in football. They need to win this road game or else the NFC East is done and dusted before the halfway point of the season. I truly believe that Philadelphia is going to uh, trounce them, to be honest. I'm there too. I'm there too. Honestly, I think it's not even going to be a competitive game. I understand why, you know, Fox and the NFL marquee this game. I get it. But I just think at the end of it, when we come here and talk about, you know, NFL on Monday, we're going to say, yeah, that wasn't such a good game. I could be wrong, but. That's what I'm thinking. Kingsley Juco is in the uh, control room, our video control room up there. Big Eagles fan. Uh, you're singing music to his ears there, Brock. Uh, I ears, know. Uh, smile ear to ear on his face right now. <laughs> okay, one more NFL game to talk about. Uh, the Your Buffalo Bills visiting the Cincinnati Bengals in Cincinnati. Sunday night, primetime game, a playoff revenge game. Your Bills have been sleepwalking for about a month, and the Bengals have woken up since a slow start. What's your level of nerve going into this game, Brock? I I don't know what my Buffalo Bills are. So some weeks you see wonderfulness, some weeks you see horribleness. I just need to see a level of a complete game. Like, just give me something that I don't have to stress for at least a quarter. Give me a game where I can say, this is entertaining. I'm not saying that they need to blow them out, but let's give me something where I'm like, where are you, Buffalo? This is not you. I want to see a real good game from Buffalo. I haven't seen that all year, with the exception of, sorry, Dave, against the Miami Dolphins. That's but- okay. That's the only game where I've seen as close to a complete game as I would have expected. Other than that, you're right. They've just slept in. Injuries have played a factor. I get that too. But I just need to see the Super Bowl aspirations that I keep hearing all the analytics people say, oh, they're going to be a playoff team and they're going to get there. Yeah, I need to see a little more of that during the season, to be honest. Yeah, if they can't get up for this game, I don't know what game they're going to get up for. The Bengals have been playing really well the last month. Their quarterback, Joe Burrow, coming off a calf strain in the preseason, was really shaky for three or four weeks, and they have been almost unbeatable for the last month or so, and they are starting to spread that ball all over the field with big passes downfield. Oof, I don't know, Brock. I don't know. I don't count your bills out because they have a they have a habit of making me look silly, but that is a top, top-tier game on Sunday night. Okay, Brock, staying in the football world, Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening, the CFL playoffs, they sneak up on you. The Hamilton Ticats are visiting the Montreal Alouettes at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. The Calgary Stampeders are rolling in to Vancouver for a game against the BC Lions at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. Brock, I'm not looking for overall analysis on these games because I think you and I have been a little bit out on the CFL for most of the year, but I will make this argument. The idea that the CFL has moved their playoff games to Saturdays, brilliant. Do not go head-to-head with the NFL on Sundays. You're going to have a much better time going to head, head-to-head with college football and hockey on Saturdays. Yeah, 100%. 
The one keynote that I'll make for Hamilton is that Bo Levi Mitchell, their quarterback, is supposed to start Ooh. against Montreal. So that is going to be a, a sort of a big deal for Hamilton. He's been on the shelf for a, quite a bit of the season, and we'll see what he comes out. But that's sort of a, a little star for the Hamilton Tiger Cats fans if uh, if you're looking for one. I'm going with uh, BC. He's going to win their game uh, as well, and we'll see what happens from there. But, yeah, I'm going to go – Hamilton's going to win and BC's going to win. Okay, so. there you go. Brock Richardson, the road doggy and the home favorite. Love it. Brock, have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Indeed, you will. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. There's lots of opportunities for you to get involved with the AMI family, including a chance to be part of a live studio audience. Kelly and Ramya, you know them, Kelly McDonald and Ramya Amuthan, are taping a special episode on Monday, November the 27th. That's only a couple weeks away at this point. You know, when, when I started reading this a few weeks ago, November the 27th felt like a million miles away. But now we're getting into the crunch time, the countdown. They're looking for 50 people to be part of the audience. So if you live in the Toronto area and want to participate, you should send an email. Info at AMI.ca, info at AMI.ca. Space is limited because all those in attendance, if you show up, you receive a Kelly and Ramya gift bag. Like, that's pretty cool, just for walking in the door. But your name is also going to be entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. That's pretty appealing. And think about it, a crowd of 50 people a 2 in 50 chance, that's a 1 in 25 chance. It's pretty good. Now, if you don't win the Apple gift card, that's cool. There's opportunities for you to win one of five Tim Hortons gift cards. And I'm not a big math person, but that's a 10% chance of winning a Tim Hortons gift card. And 50 bones goes a long way at Tim Hortons, even in the era of inflation. Now, if you want to win one of these great prizes. You have to be there live in studio on November the 27th. In Toronto, the greater Toronto area, in the western part of downtown. Pretty cool part of downtown, if you ask me. So, confirm your participation. Email info at ami.ca. Coming up after the break. The last ever Beatles song is out for you to enjoy or not. Laura Bain reviews now and then in the Entertainment Report. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You'll hear all about the new Beatles song in about three minutes. But first, here's Elizabeth Moeller with the weather story of the day. Oh, Elizabeth, old man winter is rattling his chain. Well, I can hear those chains. So we're picking up from our BC conversation yesterday because the system that swept over BC yesterday with heavy rain will soon descend on the prairies. 
we are looking at the potential for a little bit of everything as a clipper sweeps the region this weekend. Rain, snow, freezing rain, they're all on tap for this weekend from Alberta to Manitoba. Too bad that's what's on tap. A trough that's swinging across the Rockies will give rise to an Alberta clipper during the day on Saturday. And this system will tap into plenty of Pacific moisture that is following that trough across the mountains. This will allow for widespread rain, snow, and even some ice throughout the reason. And this will occur through the weekend and into Monday. And south of the Yellowhead, temperatures hovering right around the freezing mark will bring a risk of mixed precipitation into the day on Sunday. Mm. And the setup could result in some spotty freezing rain, but fear not, conditions will improve as the system moves east into northwestern Ontario. Elizabeth, thank you for this. Uh, the coats and sweaters are coming out and staying out at this point. In one minute, Laura Bain will talk about the new Beatles song. But first, car motors are getting smaller and portable. Mike Dubusky revs up another edition of Tech Trends. From ABC News, Tech Trends. Back in the 1980s, Honda sold a car in Japan called the City. City! It came with the Moto Compo, a 49cc scooter that could be stowed in the trunk. And now the Moto Compo is getting resurrected. Chad Kirshner of EV Pulse says Honda's modern interpretation of the Moto Compo is called the Moto Compacto. It is electric, but it folds up into kind of a large briefcase suitcase sort of thing. The scooter has a 15 mile an hour top speed and 12 miles of range. There's even storage for the charger, but it's not perfect, says Kirshner. It doesn't have a suspension, so if you're going through a rougher sidewalk, things like that, probably going to bounce around a little bit more. He says the Moto Compacto is designed to handle less mile situations, taking you from the train station to the office, for example. The thing is, cars aren't for everybody, so seeing stuff like this is encouraging. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Turning to the world of entertainment, the Beatles released their final song, Now and Then, with a little bit of help from their friends, Artificial Intelligence. Here's a clip from the song. There's a little bit of context to add here because, uh, you know, two members of the Beatles are dead. Yeah, that's right. And um, that is John Lennon's voice, of course, that you're hearing there. So pretty cool to have a new Beatles song coming out in 2023. So that is from a demo recording that John made back in 1978, which Yoko Ono gave to the remaining Beatles in the 1990s. Of course, at that time, we had three remaining Beatles with us. And they used that demo tape to make the songs Free as a Bird and Real Love. If you remember those, they yeah. came out in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And so they had worked on Now and Then at the time, but they abandoned it because the audio quality on it just wasn't great. And they couldn't specifically extract John's voice out from the piano that he was playing. It kind of was getting drowned out. So because the remaining three were working on it at that time, they also had re recordings of George Harrison, which is why we can truly call this a Beatles song. So in 2022, Paul and Ringo, the 
beetles we have still with us, decided to take another look at that track in light of new technology and mm -hmm. that's some that had been used on that get back documentary to isolate sound so they were able as you mentioned to use artificial intelligence to separate out john's voice and to clean up the audio which is how we get what we just heard so they've released this as a double a side alongside uh, love me do which was the beatles first single back in 1962 mm. which is is kind of cool and if people want to hear more details about the background they can watch there's a documentary on cbc gem called now and then the last beatles song that can be streamed uh laura, so, laura before you ask me a question i want to ask yeah. you a question because because <laughs> you and i both listened to this I, I you listened yesterday i listened this morning mm -hmm. i have to say the first 45 seconds to a minute of the song i really liked but you could really tell that it was kind of a mashup by the time you got to the chorus and some of the build. You, you could really feel where this was sort of a song put together by technology and producers rather than artists as the song moved along. So I, I was not, I, I loved it the first minute, but I would say as a collective, I wasn't blown away by the song. What did you think of it? Yeah, I don't really have anything negative to say about this song. And I did have sort of an emotional reaction listening to it yesterday. But I do agree. I think it's greater than the sum of its parts, perhaps because of the story. I find it, you know, haunting to hear John's voice kind mm. of paired with the current voices. Of course, there's such an age difference, right? It's sort of like John's reaching across time. And I find the lyrics really evocative, you know, uh, just some of the lyrics now and then I miss you now and then I want you to be there for me. I I don't know. I think it's a really special thing. Although I can I can understand what you're saying. They were definitely working with limited material and I think I felt a little better about the track knowing that I guess, you know, Paul talks in the documentary about kind of wrestling with whether to do this and he says he knows that John would have been on board with it and yeah. also Sean Lennon, John's son is, mm -hmm. is sort of says mm -hmm. the same thing that his dad would have thought would have thought this was cool as well, but you know, I know we've talked a lot about kind of the bad news of artificial intelligence when it comes to the music industry. You had a chat about this earlier in the week. Does this make you feel a little more hopeful at all? I, I do have some hope around artificial intelligence and arts. I, I think it has the capacity of doing some pretty interesting work. I, I would mention here, though, that the idea of taking uh, vocals post uh, uh, after someone has passed away is not necessarily completely uncommon. Uh, you heard that a lot in the hip-hop industry in the late 90s with a lot of albums uh, that were made by a notorious B.I.G. or Tupac Shakur after they passed away, where they used previous tracks that they laid down and put a, a beat and a bed underneath them and got choruses and hooks to put them together. So, so I, I, I'm hopeful in the way that you can do some like audio cleanups and you can leverage technology to give a nice, clear, coherent sound to some of this stuff. Uh, I, but I do think that any of this needs to be hit with a certain level of measure because I feel almost a little uncomfortable calling this a Beatles song. It almost strikes me as more of like a DJ mashup rather than necessarily an artist, artists coming together culminating and collaborating to create a song. Hmm. I mean, I had a little bit of a different feeling about it, but I think it, you know, it makes a difference that they weren't adding anything here. I think they were just using the artificial intelligence to take that away. And as you mentioned, that's not necessarily a new thing. I think what's new is sort of the level of 
I guess, clarity with the audio files mm-hmm. will be able to speak mm-hmm. more to that, but sort of the aptitude <laughs> to which they were able to do it with. And it certainly makes a difference for me, as I mentioned, the people who were involved. So I would have felt differently about it if it had been someone other than McCartney and Ringo that had put out this, say, new John Lennon yeah. song, for example. Yeah, that really matters, right? The idea that two members had buy-in here and John Lennon's son had buy-in here. I, I, I do think that really matters when you think about that collaboration. And as you mm-hmm. pointed out, existing pieces, something that George legitimately wrote and performed himself that got cleaned up by AI, vocals that John laid down in the 1970s. You're right, that absolutely does matter in terms of the end product. And and again, I, I shouldn't be so cynical. The end product is quite amazing to consider that all the pieces that are pulling together to create this, like, like that is cool and you're right, that should be celebrated. I shouldn't be such a negative Nelly on a Friday. <laughs> no, that's okay. You're allowed to be the cynic. It puts me in the position where I'm able to be uh, the optimist as dev- devil's advocate there. <laughs> which, which is a little bit of a role reversal for us. So that's good. I like that. I like I like that for yeah. once I get, to, I, I get to be the cynic. Hey, Laura, this is amazing. Have a lovely weekend. Talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. It only seems fitting that on the way out to break, you get a little bit more of the Beatles with Now and Then. Coming up after the break, it's the Roundtable talking all about financial literacy. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's round table time. It's financial literacy month. So Elizabeth Moeller, you've got some questions for myself and Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Amuthan. Yes, that's right. It's financial literacy month. So we're thinking all about how to manage our debt and how to save and what our financial rights are. And so I wanted to pop a question or two out to the panel. So I'm going to give you two and you can choose. What is the most helpful piece of advice around saving that you have received? And what's a piece of advice that perhaps you wish you had received around saving and spending and all that good stuff? And I'm going to start with Remia. So Elizabeth, I've had a lot of up and downs with my own saving habits. Uh, I think that, you know, over the years I've been able to teach myself better ways, if you will. Um, But the bigger perspective that I have around this is that we just don't get enough teaching, enough information, enough good advice, good professional perspective from a younger age. Uh, Sometimes it's literally the, the situation is you go and get your first credit card and then you just start learning. Um, I know that it's a very, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nuanced Fair. conversation because some people have uh, parents who will talk to them about their finances. Some people have good background, like their parents or caregivers or just, you know, family dynamics. They have better background of uh, talking about money and others of us just don't. So in my family, it's never been so easy. And, uh, you know, you pick up on uh, what not to do sometimes. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> the the best piece of advice I got is that it's never too late to start. Um, I think that mm-hmm. it's yeah. sometimes easy to good feel one, like, oh, one. my God, you know, 
you have 30 more years or you should have started 10 years ago or you could capitalize if dot 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 and uh, you you start feeling the pressure of am i too old have i really missed out in the last 12 years i could have been where and you start to kind of um feel like you're spiraling because you didn't yeah yeah, exactly. So I I think that the the thing that I started to hear, because it was around two or three years ago when I properly started saving. Um, and uh, around that time, the biggest thing that was helpful to me is that just start now. You know, don't think about when you could have, when you should have, what you should have, uh, but just start now. And there's so many mediums and ways to do that. Yeah, it can also be dribs and drabs, right? You don't need to try and do $1,000 a month. It can be $5 a month. And if that's where you want to start and that's where you can start, it's an appropriate place to start. Nizreen Abdelmajid, it's dealer's choice. What's the most helpful piece of advice you've received or what's the piece of advice you wish you'd received? So I'm going to focus on the second question here. Um, I I think at a young age or a younger age, when you know you start having your own card and you you get excited about your Visa card, credit card, or whatever it is, I think at a young age we don't learn how important it is to keep a good credit, and it's really really mm. really hard to erase that bad credit. And I have friends that can't rent uh, a condo. I have friends that really can't do much with bad credit because they have bad credit. And I feel like um, even like with my family, they've always always told me, okay, like pay for your pay for your card, always pay for your bill on time. But I never really got the idea, okay, how bad is it if you like miss a payment or like yeah you know, build mm-hmm. on that bad credit. Mm-hmm. Okay, you could start over. Like, I didn't know it was so hard to start over to start good credit, like how to get all that back, how to erase all that bad credit, because it really does take a while. It does take a while. And it's it sucks um, just hearing other people's stories about, you know, they can't really do much with bad credit. So I feel like even high school days, we really should have... Yeah been taught that once once you dig a debt hole it can be extremely difficult to get out and then if you do Mm -hmm. get those derogatory payments or missed payments it can really hurt you for seven eight ten years it can set you back so being mindful of debt is definitely a good one there in his elizabeth elizabeth if i was to offer one piece that i wish someone had told me earlier especially in the context of financial literacy month because there's going to be a lot of people who tell you seek out the advice of financial professionals Well, a lot of financial professionals have their own vested interests as well. I'm not saying they're nefarious, but they have their own vested interests as well. No one is ever going to care about your money more than you. So look for independent financial literacy where you can find it. And there can be some very easy, accessible ways. The guy has a worldview that I don't always agree with, but Dave Ramsey, the Dave Ramsey show, is all about budgeting and spending mm-hmm. and investing and your finances. I do not yes. agree with everything he says, but at a fundamental level, you need to seek out third-party people. Do not simply depend on the financial advisor at your bank to push you in the right direction. You have to do your own research. You have to do your own literacy. And there's a lot of noise in mass media. There's a lot of noise in social media. There's a lot of noise inside the professionals. But the information is out there, and you've got to be willing to do the work because no one 
will ever care about your money as much as you care about your money. Elizabeth, dealer's choice, advice, great advice that you received or advice that you wish you'd received? I'm going to say advice that I um, wish I had received, and that is um, try to apply for a credit card as early as you can with a, a low limit so you can start building your credit. I didn't get a credit card until my almost, I was 30, and that's that's a long time um, of sort of wasted years where I could have built credit. And I also wish that I had watched Gail Vazoxlade a little bit more often because she does a great job of talking about budgeting in a very easy to understand way. See, there's another great uh, example. I believe that TV program was called "Till Debt Do Us Part." I, yes. I, I don't know if, if she's moved mm -hmm. on to something different, but yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting show as well. Elizabeth, thank you for this. You've been an inter integral part of the show the last couple of weeks. You're not going far. Thanks, you'll, be, you'll be back I'm not next. Going far. You'll be back next Wednesday. But it's been great having you in the co-host chair the last couple That's of weeks. It's been great to be in the co-host chair. Thanks for having me. That's Elizabeth Moeller. Nazarene Abdelmajid has also been hanging out for a little bit. You find Nazarene almost every day as part of the roundtable just like you find Ramya Amuthan as the co-host of Kelly and Ramya every day at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Ramya, what's coming up on the Friday edition of the show? Yep, we're talking about new smart glasses that play sounds to help blind people uh, find out what they're holding, what they're touching, um, and basically finding objects. John Beeler is going to tell us more about that on our app update. Also, we're talking about the World Series with Brock Richardson, amongst other things, of course, on uh, sports. And on the chatty bookshelf, there's a lot more controversy, apparently, more than what we're used to <laughs> at oh. to this point oh. uh, with the uh, audiobooks and AI. Shocking. And that's what we're going to talk about with Ryan Lee on the chatty bookshelf. Right on. Ramya, have a lovely weekend. Talk to you next week. Sounds good, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan. Coming up next, the literature conversation continues. Five books have been nominated for the Governor General's Literary Awards for Fiction. Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access will tell you all about them. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. People are still reacting to the death of actor Matthew Perry. Of course, you knew him as Chandler Bing on the TV show Friends. He also wrote a book. He wrote a memoir just one year ago. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access has thoughts on Matthew Perry's legacy. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning. So last year, Matthew Perry penned his memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. It talked about his life and his battles with addiction. Now, Sila has the book in their collection, but how do you think Matthew Perry is going to be remembered? Well, it's interesting you asked that question. Um, I've been sort of grieving. Friends was a big part of my younger years as well. And so um, I was watching a couple of interviews and he said that really what he wanted to be remembered for was his book and for um, what his book does, which is his goal was to have the book help folks who were struggling with addiction there in their own right. And that he always wanted to be the kind of person that would be able to take somebody by the hand and help lead them out of that, um, that depth that they had been in, that he had shared with them. And so I think, you know, given that the book's only been out almost exactly a 
year from uh, before his death. I think it's a pretty profound statement that he made in all of these different interviews. You know, he he made us laugh. I've been watching some of the clips. He was a riot. But I think really his really raw and honest talk about what it's like to be living with addiction is uh, probably his longer legacy. You said the word there, honest, and that's one of the things about a memoir that really matters, not just simply sharing your truth, but talking honestly about the real things that occurred in your life. I think that's what separates kind of your run-of-the-mill public relations memoir from, from a reason why someone should actually get down, put pen to paper, or fingertip to keyboard. Yeah, he actually said that it wasn't so hard to write this book. What he found really hard to do was to read it. He narrates the novel, or the memoir, rather. And um, he said confronting those stories in that way, like speaking about them, was what really um, was what was really difficult about this book for him. And I think it's because he is so honest and he is so raw. If you watch any of his interviews, he's very clear about what he's been through and how it's impacted his life and that he doesn't want that to be his legacy. Yeah, it's uh, it was one that I think shocked a lot of people, Karen, just because of how young he was. You know, like anytime anybody passes away, it's sad. But there's something so tragic about losing somebody in their 50s. Maybe that's me applying my own lens here as I am a few days away from my 40th birthday. But I I, I, I honestly thought he was older than that. And then when I read that he was in his mid 50s, I, like, th- that especially floored me because much like you, I, I tie my sort of maturation into a teenager and young adult directly to the TV show Friends. Yeah, and and in his in his memoir he says he should be dead. That's one of the opening lines. And so it's a little bit haunting that he made it through all of these addictions. It doesn't sound like he was, you know, still battling those addictions um that there's no toxicology in his in um the the reports. So yeah, yeah just a really sad story that he made it through that and then, you know, it sounds like he had a heart attack and died. I don't know all the the yeah, d- yeah. the gossip, but yeah. Well, Karen, yeah. let's... Anyway, let's, it's a good read. It's Okay, excellent. Yeah, definitely definitely one worth checking out, especially uh, especially in the context of the, the conversations over the course of the uh, last seven days or so. Karen, let's uh, pivot over to something a little bit more uh, chipper, or at least chipper happy for these uh, authors who've been nominated. You do a regular featuring of titles available in Sila's collection, and this week... You want to talk about five books that have been nominated for the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction. So the winners in both the fiction and nonfiction categories are going to be announced in just a couple of days on November the 8th. But hey, there's still time to read some of these books. The first one you wanted to spotlight was A History of Burning by Janika Oza. Yeah, so this is interesting. This was named one of the most anticipated books of 2023 by the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail and Oprah Daily and Goodreads. So lots of uh, high expectations for this book. The author won the 2022 O. Henry Prize for short fiction, but this is her debut novel. And it is an epic, sweeping historical novel spanning continents and the century. And it's all about how one act of survival can reverberate through generations. So between... Uh, 1898 and 1992 
two. This book covers British colonialism. It covers the Idi Amin dictatorship, racial cleansing, and anti-immigrant prejudice. So it starts at the beginning of the 20th century, and Pirabhai, uh, a teenage boy, is looking for work, and he's taken from his village in India to labor on the East African Railway for the British. Um, and one day he commits this act, which ensures his survival, but it really ends up haunting him and his family for years to come. Uh, so the family scatters. His children are raised and born under the jacarinda trees um, in Kampala. And it's this is during the waning days of the British colonial rule. And then, of course, the situation with Idi Amin happens and they have to flee. And they come to, um, eventually they come to Canada. His grandchildren are all around the world, but they find their way back here in Toronto. And a letter arrives to one of them that sort of flames the fire that haunts this whole family. That makes each generation question how far they're willing to go and what they're willing to to do to secure their own place in the world. There are a lot of characters in this book to keep track of, but the author really manages to introduce them in a way that helps the reader maintain the thread. She also has this really beautiful way of taking the older characters' past and what they've survived in their youth, and then tying that back directly to how they responded to the hopes and the dreams of their own children. So you get this really familial thread running through. It's many things. It really is a sweeping epic saga, but it really talks about things like the story that we share, the ones that we choose not to share, and our collective search for home. What does that mean to all of us? Excellent, excellent book, and it's well worth the read. Another one to put the spotlight on this week is Chrysalis by Anuja Varghese. Yeah, so this is an author that lives in Hamilton, Ontario, and she writes um, primarily books around and stories around women of color getting leading roles. So this is her debut short story collection. She's been published in a number of literary magazines and, and collections, but this is all of her work in this one collection. And it's written from a, a perspective exploring the South Asian diaspora through a feminist and speculative lens. She's a really interesting writer, really sort of genre-bending. She incorporates a lot of um, really uh, magical sort of elements to her writing. So this short story collection has a number of really interesting ones. There's a, a story about a couple in a crumbling marriage that faces divine intervention. There's one about a woman who dies in her dreams over and over again until she finds salvation in an unexpected place. Uh, there's one about a teenage misfit who discovers darkness lurking just beyond the borders of her suburban home. So she takes all of these and she runs the theme of feminism through them. The writing's very poetic. It's very sensual. It's sort of surreal in some ways. Um, and it touches on themes that you would, you know, you would expect about intersectionality of family, um, community, sexuality. There's a lot of um, interesting themes about that. Uh, and the cultural expectations, particularly for women and women of color. She draws on fairy tales and folklore. And it's a it's a really interesting book. I love short story collections to sort of dip into an author's writing because you don't have mm. to dedicate a huge amount of time and you can get a get a flavor of their of their writing um in a in a just a sort of a bite-sized chunk. So it's interesting to me that there's a lot of debut authors on this um, nomination list. And this one I think is an author we need to be paying attention to. Uh, super encouraging to get new voices platformed and acknowledged by uh, major awards like this. What about In the Upper Country by Kai Thomas? 
So this is also a debut novel, and it is a it's got an interesting story. I think um, it's the the story of two unforgettable women. One's a young woman, and she's just sort of beginning a journey of reckoning and self discovery, and the other is an older woman who's completed sort of her last main act. And they intertwine in this really beautiful novel set at um, in the Underground Railroad and at the terminus of the Underground Railroad. So it takes us along this path from Virginia to Michigan, and it also takes us through the Indigenous nations around the Great Lakes to the Black refugees communities of Canada. So it begins in the 1800s in Dunmore, which is a fictional Canadian town, and it's the it's settled by people fleeing enslavement in America, sort of at the end of the railroad, so to speak. There's a young woman, her name is uh, Lincinda Martin, and she works for a Black journalist, who's, and she's been taught reading and writing and math by an elderly bachelor neighbor. So that's an interesting piece of the story. One night, a neighbor uh, summons Lucinda because a slave hunter has been shot on his land and she arrives, she thinks to try and uh, save this man's life, but he's dead when she arrives. Instead, she's been called because the woman who shot him refuses to run away to try and save herself. And so um, the journalist that, that Lucinda works for wants her to get her testimony so that they can, you know, protect her if they need to. Uh, so the old woman doesn't want to talk to anybody but Lucinda. And they they have this sort of barter where they share a story for a story. And it begins this really beautiful exchange of, of tales that reveal Black history and Indigenous history and how it's interwoven in North America, and as well as the personal experiences of these two women. And the older woman shares a secret that reveals um, something really important to, to Lucinda's life, and it really changes the the impact or changes the course of her life. So I think this is a really important element of the story. And it's very profound that like women's stories are so often left untold or dismissed or forgotten throughout history, history, especially for black and indigenous communities. So I think that this is a really interesting book that it, it um, interweaves these two different perspectives and talks about the relationship that really we don't hear much about in general. I'm looking forward to reading this book. I haven't yet, but it's definitely on my list. Karen, unfortunately out of time to talk about the last two, but you also wanted to put a spotlight on We Spread by Ian Reed and The Sleeping Car Porter by Suzette Meyer. Karen, thank you for all of the work you do, you and your colleagues, top-tier stuff. Have a lovely weekend. Talk to you again in a couple weeks. Thanks so much. That's Karen McKay, Communications Manager at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. You can follow them on Twitter at Cela Library, C-E-L-A library. That's all the time there is for the show today, all the time there is for the show this week. Don't worry, things kick off again Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. It's the end of the week, so let's say thank you to the people who put this show together. Roll them credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Contributors, Rami Amuthan and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanerol. Visual producer, Bruce McClarion. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion-Jones. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Production, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. 
Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media, Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.